So the issues that Brooke Jackson brought to fore are also issues for all of those other drug trials and vaccine trials. One of those that many people have been aware of probably is the RSV trial. Uh, so they're coming out with an mRNA RSV shot. Uh, they're coming out with mRNA flu shots. There's 50 mRNA products currently in clinical trials right now. But I wanna, I wanna highlight a few of them. Uh, the first is uh, informed consent. They're not, what we have seen is they're not giving proper informed consent to the people who are volunteering for these trials. Uh, but they're not being fully informed about what they're being given. Uh, they're not fully signing off on the informed consent forms. Uh, and then their data is not being tracked properly. So they're not uploading in a timely way, adverse reactions, deaths, other problems. And I'm not just talking about the COVID shot, everybody. It's, it's everything, it's across the board. We're seeing these failures in the clinical trials. Additionally, and I hate to say this, uh, but additionally, we have seen that doctors are being paid money to enroll their patients into clinical trials. If a doctor is getting paid $1,500 to enroll one of his or her patients in a clinical trial, they're incentivized really, I think at this point, to put the patient in harm's way. And I think that is happening in many instances. Doesn't dinner sound great as it's cooking? This dinner is from Riverbend Ranch, which always provides prime or high choice, has never been given hormones, never been given antibiotics, never been given mRNA vaccines. It's raised in the USA. It's processed in the USA. In fact, it's fully vertically integrated, which means that they own the cow that gives birth to the calf. It's raised on their fields and then taken to their butcher and then shipped to you. And if we compare what we can buy from Riverbend Ranch to four other major state companies that sell bundles that have ribeyes and other meat in it, it can be as much as $184 to $59 less expensive. It's a great price value and it's a delicious piece of meat. Check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. Mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. If you've noticed, I've been wearing this t-shirt for a few episodes now. I have them available on eBay. Check out the links below to get your size. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff. On this podcast, you will be encouraged to question everything and to have the courage to stand for the truth. And now, to your host, Dr. Sigaloff. Thank you for joining me again. I first want to give a shout out to all my Patreon subscribers. We've got Too Tough giving $30 a month. We have an anonymous family donor giving $20.20 a month. We have the Plandemic Reprimando giving $17.76 a month with Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, Frank, Brian, Shell, Brantley, and Gary. We have a self-made level at $10 with Kevin and Pat and Bev. 
We have the Refine Not Burned at $5 with Linda, Emmy, Joe, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, Ken, Rick, Mary, and Amanda. Addison Mulder is giving $3 a month, and Frank is giving $1.50. And then we have the Courage is Contagious at $1 a month with Jay, Spessnasty, Darrell, Susan, BB King, and Caleb. Thank you so much for all your donations. It's been incredibly important to me. Uh, also, check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours for the best steaks that I've ever cooked, and I'm willing to bet the best steaks you've ever cooked. Check them out. My next guest is attorney Warner Mendenhall. Now, he's been in practice since the 1990s giving False Claims Act, uh, going after false claims. And that's what he's here to talk to today about how do we go after either Pfizer or the government because of fraud in these shots. Sir, Mr. Warner, uh, Mr. Mendenhall, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I mean, we are already uh, pursuing fraud against Pfizer uh, on behalf of the U.S. taxpayers. Our relator's name is Brooke Jackson, and I think many, many people know her and know of her work. She was a clinical trial uh, manager, and she saw problems in the clinical trials that she believed made the data that came out of those clinical trials inadequate and faulty. Uh, and certainly uh, Pfizer knew that the data was bad and yet presented it to the FDA in order to get an emergency use authorization for their product. The emergency use authorization was the precursor to them getting paid uh, the billions of dollars that they've gotten paid for the hundreds of millions of shots uh, that have been given around the world. So what kinds of things that you can talk about without, you know, exposing any sort of legal strategy, um, obviously, that the fraud that we're seeing? Well, the clinical trials in general, it, it's interesting to me that uh, even prior to the pandemic, uh, the uh, Department of Justice actually recognized that clinical trials in this country are really having a problem. And they had a clinical trial initiative uh, that they were going to pursue in uh, 2019 prior to the pandemic. But nevertheless, that, that didn't really get off the ground. There was, I know of one criminal uh, charge that was brought uh, and closed out. But I think there's, there's problems in general with how clinical trials are run. The pharmaceutical companies are not doing them in-house. They're contracting them out to uh, clinical trial companies. Uh, the one here that Pfizer initially contracted it with was called Icon, and they're based in Ireland. And then Icon uh, contracts out for clinical trial sites with other uh, smaller companies. And the company that Brooke Jackson worked for was called Ventavia. Now, Ventavia, for example, it was not just working on the Pfizer shot. It was working on many, many other things. Uh, it probably has... Um, you know, it has tens of clinical trials ongoing at any given moment. So the issues that Brooke Jackson brought to fore are also issues for all of those other drug trials and vaccine trials. One of those that many people have been aware of probably is the RSV trial. Uh, so they're coming out with an mRNA RSV shot. Uh, they're coming out with mRNA flu shots. There's 50 mRNA products currently in clinical trials right now. 
And what's happening with the clinical trials, and I mean, there's so many things, I, I, but I wanna, I wanna highlight a few of them. Uh, the first is uh, informed consent. They're not, what we have seen is they're not giving proper informed consent to the people who are volunteering for these trials. And, and many of these people are just patriotic Americans who wanna help advance drugs in this country uh, to cure disease. I mean, they have the best of intentions, uh, but they're not being fully informed about what they're being given. Uh, they're not fully signing off on the informed consent forms. Uh, and then their data is not being tracked properly. So they're not uploading in a timely way, adverse reactions, deaths, other problems. And I'm not just talking about the COVID shot, everybody. It's, it's everything. It's across the board. We're seeing these failures in the clinical trials. And I'm focusing on Ventavia, which is one of the companies that she worked for, but the, there have been problems across many of these contractors and subcontractors in the clinical trial space. Additionally, and I hate to say this, uh, but additionally, we have seen that doctors are being paid money to enroll their patients into clinical trials. I think you, right off the bat, I think anybody can see that there's a conflict of interest in that. If a doctor is getting paid $1,500 to enroll one of his or her patients in a clinical trial, they're incentivized really, I think at this point, to put the patient in harm's way. And I think that is happening in many instances. So that's, I, I think those are, those are really the key points. I mean, there's many, many other things that were going on that, you know, such as um, unblinding is the other big one. Uh, they were handling the data and the patient information in a very reckless manner so that everybody knew who was getting the shot. And you know, as a doctor and a scientist, that that cannot result in good, reliable data uh, if the people who are giving the shot or giving the drug in a clinical trial know who's getting it, that biases the data. And we did see that in the Pfizer situation. So I want to go back to one of the earlier things you mentioned. So let's say this is the informed consent part and, and reporting information late. So let's say we've got a study that's going and we've got some people entered in the study, let's say some pregnant women, and they take whatever thing they're studying, and let's say they, they have a fetal demise, their baby dies. And then we have more women enter this study, and that's not reported yet. They knew it, but they haven't reported it yet. And now they, they don't properly consent, and they don't say, well, we've had you know X amount of women, and they've all lost their, their babies, um, but they get more women to enter it, and they lose their babies. Is that something that could be happening? Uh, that is something that you might have even have heard of that happening in real life. That That is going on right now. And the RSV trial is the instance where that is happening right now as we speak. Um, in fact, I believe it's GlaxoSmithKline ended their RSV trial because of fetal death uh, in the process. Wow. That is, mm -hmm. that should be earth shaking to everyone. It should be. We all need to wake up to what's going on as fast as we can. You know, we, we need to, you know, that's the thing that I loved about what Paul Merrick did early in the in this uh, process, Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey, I think most people know them. You know, they looked at repurposing drugs that would address uh, viral replication and address, uh, you know, what was going on in the body. 
uh, in terms of the uh, you know overreaction of the immune system sometimes. So they had they had really laid out this uh, way to use trusted old drugs. We know how they react in the body, and they had figured out kind of the mechanisms of of COVID nineteen and how to address that with drugs that we all know that have been very well tested, have a lot of stability, and don't have a lot of adverse reactions. Uh, instead, you know their story, uh, all of that got suppressed. They weren't allowed to talk about it. Uh, they made a valiant effort to testify and get this out to the public, but it was suppressed, and it was suppressed in order to pave the way for an emergency use product, because if you have a viable treatment, uh, then you cannot get emergency use products uh, out into the public. Uh, so that had to be suppressed in order for this vaccination program, quote unquote vaccination, uh, to go forward. And, uh, but, you know, all of us need to, you know, realize that. And we need to really pay attention to these doctors who have the courage and the honor to step up and try to figure out ways to deal with the kinds of illnesses that are coming down the pike that we've, we've got to deal with. One thing, since you've been really digging into this from a, a legal perspective, uh, I know you've you've mentioned the mRNA a few times, but have you looked into the lipid nanoparticle that also accompanies the mRNA? Well, absolutely. Uh, the, the lipid nanoparticle itself is not authorized for use in human beings. I think, I'm not sure if all your viewers know that, but it's not authorized for use. And then there's this pseudouridine uh, that is also very deadly in a subset of our population, and it creates a pseudo-anaphylactic shock, a pseudo-reaction uh, um, to, to the pseudouridine, and that is very dangerous. And the problem with that particular reaction, I think, and you may know more about this than me, is that it's very hard to predict who's going to have that kind of reaction, that allergic reaction to the pseudouridine or to the lipid nanoparticle. And, and uh, you know, that, uh, you know, unlike some other um, ingredients of these vaccines, quote unquote vaccines, um, that's very hard to test for and control for. So it really hits people out of the blue and the doctors aren't prepared for it. I, I will say this, I mean, one of the things that's interesting um, and, and they overlooked in injecting this product in everybody is that when they use these types of particles, uh, lipid nanoparticles in, in a cancer treatment, for example, because it is used and it is helpful in other ways, it's technology, uh, but technology has a cost and they know that in cancer treatment. So they do a lot of things to actually suppress the allergic reactions before they give you a lipid nanoparticle shot in cancer treatment. So they, they already knew there were these problems that could arise with people uh, when they were using these products, but, but they decided because they're, they're rolling it out on a mass basis, they didn't have time to do that type of very close monitoring that you would get if you were using one of these types of products in a cancer treatment. Wow. So they're just giving it to everybody and see who reacts. And then one thing they were doing in the military is they would, you know, I've heard doctors saying, oh, yeah, you had a reaction to the first one, but we've got EpiPens and we've, we'll get you with Benadryl beforehand so we can get you the second one. It's like, how is that doctor still practicing? 
yeah, they have. Where, where, where is that old saying? Do no harm. I mean, right. you know, where is that? The basic uh, oath that physicians take to do no harm and to serve their patients as human beings. I mean, it, it just all of this went out the window in this process in so many ways. And uh, you know, I know, um, you know, the military. I think it was really used as a way to purge our military of, I think, patriotic Americans, independent thinking Americans, uh, you know, strong Americans. It purged our military uh, and it forced the others uh, essentially to take a shot, um, many of them unwilling. I do recognize many people did take the shot and they were equally unwilling, but, you know, maybe for personal reasons had to continue. Um, and, and we're not in a position to stand up. So I feel very badly for them. Uh, and I, I do want to recognize, uh, you know, the, uh, that, that we do recognize them. They were forced against their will to do it. And uh, we certainly want to help uh, those folks as well. Right, which I, I believe that's a crime against humanity to coerce someone into entering a, a study that they don't wish to enter. Even any pressure, you know, it, it's unfair. It's unconscionable how awful well, the I treatment mean, was. Yeah, I, I notice that people get upset when we bring up World War II and Nuremberg and the Mengele experiments. But the whole point of that uh, was that it is very important to have uh, informed consent with no coercion of human beings for for any, especially an experimental medicine. But I mean, I would even draw that more broadly all of us should always have informed consent about any medication that we are being asked to take or consider taking and we all should have the right to refuse without coercive influences and i you know it's interesting uh california which obviously has been one of the very very worst states in this crisis um has that built into its laws it actually has the nuremberg principles in its state law and, uh, you know, it is it's one of the few states that's encoded the Nuremberg principles of choice and information and freedom to decide in its law. So we are using that in one particular case. We sued the University of California system, the regents, um, on behalf of about a quarter million employees for failing to follow the Nuremberg principles that are outlined in California's own law. So we are, you know, essentially, you know, trying to hold them to what were prior and previous to this uh, liberal values uh, that, the, you know, that the Democrats uh, have shown they're no longer liberal in the classic sense of that. And they have forgotten these core values that we hold dear. Well, I think it's, it's quite telling that the Chinese government and leaders came to visit California. And they cleaned up the streets for them. And they I think that yeah. says a lot about the state. And they visited the White House, too, I believe. So, I, <laughs> you know, I, you know, you got to wonder what's going on there. It just seems like, uh, you know, despite some of the rhetoric, there's this behind the scenes maneuvering to please China and to build China up at the expense of the United States. Uh, and that seems to just be an ongoing process that we have to stop. Well, what's interesting about that is, and I encourage the, the viewer and the listener to go back and check out my episode 33, where I show you how 
Fosun Pharmaceutical made a business agreement with BioNTech in, I think it was uh, March of 22. So basically, the Chinese government bought out BioNTech, and then BioNTech made a business agreement with Pfizer, basically bought out Pfizer. And then about a month or two later, they said, we're going to supply 300 million doses of this shot for Americans. And the documents that were released through FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, said that they were tested in Shanghai, China. That's a very important observation, and I'm glad you brought that up. And it's even deeper than that. Um, the PCR testing that was taking place as well uh, in the trials was also being sent to Wuhan. So, I mean, what are we talking about here? You have the Wuhan flu that, that uh, you know, hits our country, and then, then our testing and our samples, our genetic samples are being sent back to Wuhan. Uh, unbelievable. So China is is a thread throughout this crisis. Uh, a lot of the materials that are being used to build uh, the the shots uh, and get a you know a lot of the materials in those vials are coming from China. And uh, you you're aware of the whistleblowers at the at the plants and the manufacturing plants that you know saw Chinese writing uh, on the bags uh, and boxes that were arriving at the plant. So, you know, China is all part of this. And I, again, you know, I think it is just it is a mechanism to weaken our society, both directly, individually. Every every one of us who took the shot has, has had uh, probably some immune damage. Uh, and it's it's weakened the society by cleansing our institutions of of independent patriotic Americans uh, who were willing to stand up. Uh, you know, whether it's military, healthcare, education, uh, local government, police forces, fire, firefighters. I mean, we've dealt with people from all of those regions of, of work, all those areas of work uh, who are being purged out of all of our institutions from local uh, to state and federal level. Well, to kind of further that also, I, I recently spoke with uh, attorney Dale Saran, and he was saying that the military is basically purged around, and this is a guesstimate, and the military will never be accurate with their number, but around 300,000 service members either directly purged or um, encouraged to get out. And then you look at the video clip of uh, Senator or Congressman, I can't remember, Dick Durbin saying, oh, well, these illegal aliens that are here now, if they can serve in the military, if they can meet all those requirements, then we can give them citizenship. Well, you've just replaced the entire military with people who don't know our constitution. And you've changed the culture of America so much right, because right. now they're enforcing rules that they don't understand, like the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. They don't understand those things. Right, exactly. I, you know, 300,000, that, that fits what I uh, thought as well. Um, you know, I think some months ago we had kind of gone through that and thought it was about a quarter of a million. But everybody needs to think about what that means because you're taking out very able people. You're taking out people who are strong enough to lead and, and in a position to lead. We're not all in a position to lead. And I, and I understand that, but these people who lost their jobs, they, they are leaders. They led by objecting. They led by, uh, you know, giving up something they held dear uh, to hold to the very basic principles of this country. 
And that's what I see as well. I mean, not, it's not just military. I mean, we know millions and millions of people now have left jobs or changed jobs because of these mandates. And, and those are our leaders. And there are leaders in our hospitals, our leaders in our educational institutions, our leaders in our military, our leaders um, in the police forces and fire forces. And, and those people are really, really important. You've got to have that independent American spirit uh, to do the job we need done um, and, and uh, protect our Constitution. And that's, who, that's who's been most affected here. But what I do think they've created uh, is they have created another army. Uh, they have created an army of patriots that I really do think, you know, they always say you only need a few percent of a population to change a government and to change a direction of society. Well, that few percent that, that stood up, fought, and walked away and sacrificed, they're not done. They're not done sacrificing and they're not done fighting. They've made the sacrifice, they've entered the fight. And I know from my experience of with all of my clients and, and all the the groups that I've met with, that they are locked in on this. They are not going to give up until it's fixed. Um, I, I've, I've almost been a little bit surprised. I'm, I'm emphasizing it because of my surprise, because, you know, I, I remember a set of clients uh, from a hospital here, 200 of them get, got fired, and the litigation's been going on for, you know, uh, several years now. And I they held a meeting and I was concerned because I thought, well, gosh, it's been going on so long. Are they bored with this? Are they going to still be holding the line, holding strong? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> when I showed up to meet with them, they were not only holding the line, they understood what had happened now. You know, a lot of us, I think, for the, at the beginning didn't understand the scope of this. They understood. They had been studying. They had been thinking about how to fix this. And so that really uh, heartened me in that process. Yeah, I think one thing that's most of these people that that notice this or that are in this fight that have been, you know, part of the pandemic reprimando uh, ranks, the, the ones who have been fired or, or left or not encouraged to be around the family, they understand that this is a war. This isn't just like just like saying it's a war. It truly is a war when you look back at I don't know if you've seen this, I'm sure you have, but the emergency use authorization. To make that declaration, you must have a chemical, a biologic, nuclear, or radiologic attack against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, U.S. citizens on foreign soil, or against the military. And you have to meet one of those requirements. They didn't state which one, but they said because of this attack that's or this this thing that's coming out of China, we are now declaring an emergency, which allows companies to use this emergency use authorization. And you can again, you can only use that designation if it's an attack through a chemical, biologic, radiologic, or nuclear uh, assault against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, foreign soil, or the military. And so this truly is a war. This is not shooting bullets at each other war, but I do believe that America has been attacked with a biological weapon. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, and let's go back to the Brooke Jackson case. I mean, this is a Department of Defense contract for military readiness. This isn't your health department. 
it's not your FDA, your CDC. It's a Department of Defense contract designed to ensure military readiness. So essentially what they're saying is exactly that. This is a war and that the civilians now have to be militarily readied by getting the shot. That's what they're saying. That's what the contract says. It's not just Warner Mendenhall uh, or Dr. Sigalov saying it. That's the contract. And our case and our judge has verified that it is a DOD prototype project for military readiness. Wow. And that's, first of all, I mean, that's exactly what, uh, what uh, Sasha Latipova is saying. That reflects the same sentiment that she's been reporting on. Now, I was telling uh, Attorney Dale Saran this information, and I had read this line. This is from Frago number 5, Fragmentary Order number 5, where it talked about, um, I don't remember the exact line, but I'm going to paraphrase, where I'm going to read what, I, I'm going to tell you what I thought it read as. It said something to the effect of, commanders must ensure that there is enough FDA-approved vaccine available for their service members. That's what I thought it read, and I read that probably over 30 times over a year. And then after that year, I finally read what the words actually say. And what the words actually say is the commanders will ensure that there is sufficient numbers of DOD approved vaccine. The DOD is not in the business of making vaccines. <laughs> right, right. Or approving vaccines. They don't have any capacity really to approve a vaccine. Of course not. It's not their... It's not their mandate. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is just critical for people to understand. I'm in touch with Sasha. She certainly has followed Brooke's case and has been uh, very uh, attentive to all the contracts that we're litigating uh, right now. And I think she's done an, a marvelous job. And uh, she and Catherine Watt have, have both really poured over the legislative structure that got us to where we are now. And, and why they were empowered to do this um, and how they were empowered. And, uh, you know, so they've done very, very important work. It's certainly uh, been helpful to us in our litigation. It's been helpful to me personally, uh, you know, having other people look at it and, and come up with explanations. Uh, so I, I appreciate all the work that they've done and, and so many other people. But, uh, you know, one of the things that they said that I thought was particularly revealing is that emergency use products, you know, we, the way we always thought about it was that we as citizens should have access if there's an emergency to, to these products. Of course, without coercion, if we need them badly to deal with an illness, it's, you know, uh, that we need to deal with. But instead what's happened is that the regime, the legislative regime, the administrative regime, the military regime has really set up a process where they have access to our bodies. It's, it's the reversal of what we think. It's the DOD getting access to the population under the military readiness rubric. That's the access that is really being dealt with here. It's not our access to drugs that may or may not help us. It's military access to civilian bodies. Which is a terrifying thought that here it started off as, let me give compassion and allow you to have the same protections that the military is ha having. And then it was flipped on its head by the current government and, you know, r rulers of our country, really, because they're, you know, 
they're not working for the people too much these days. And they're forcing people or encouraging stiff arming, um, forcing and coercing to take these shots that should be offered to the military, but not coerced. And now they're forced upon the entire population, something developed and made in China. Yep. Yep. And, and I, and we all know, um, I mean, that was, again, let's go back to the clinical trials and Brooke Jackson. I mean, we knew in the clinical trials that they were ineffective. They didn't stop transmission. Roughly, if you look at both arms of the clinical trial, 22,000 in this arm, 22,000 in that arm, they had the same rate, roughly, of COVID uh, infection. And in fact, in the first seven days uh, after the either placebo or shot, there was a higher rate of infection among those who got the shot. Wow. And then, of course, uh, there was a higher mortality rate in the uh, arm of the trial that got the shot. So it has, it increases your chance for infection in the first seven days. It kills you at a higher rate than uh, if you don't get anything at all. Uh, and uh, the all-cause mortality, whether it's COVID or cancer or, or vaccine reaction, was higher in the vaccine arm. So all of that means that this made no sense at all. Uh, and we knew this and Pfizer knew this. And, and I'll tell you, frankly, Moderna knew this and uh, Novavax knew this uh, from the beginning. And, and I think even uh, J&J uh, can be implicated as well. Yeah, the things that uh, Sasha Latipova is talking about, how these are DOD contracts. Um, so would that mean that the root that's in all of these shots is the, is the lipid nanoparticle that's been supplied by the government or encouraged to be used? Because they all have different formulations. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. They all seem to have different formulations of well, DNA uh, or mRNA, but they all have the lipid nanoparticle in them. Yeah. Well, that was just a trick, uh, too. I mean, we have, you know, we have what everybody now realizes uh, is process one and process two. So process one was used in the trials. And that process, and this is, this I, you know, when the magnetic stuff came out, I, I kind of scoffed at that myself, I have to confess. But we have since learned that process one was a process where the, where the mRNA was extracted and purified using magnetic nanoparticles. <laughs> Almost unbelievable. So uh, Sherry, Dr. Jerry Tenpenny, who got completely uh, trashed in the media, was correct. And, and now at this point, she's here in Ohio. I, I believe that she's lost her license over this. Uh, but she was right. Uh, the most extreme interpretations and the most extreme uh, analysis that came out in the beginning actually turns out to have been right. The second thing is there's process two. So when they had to scale up, not, you know, the, the, the magnetic nanoparticles, I think people can imagine, this is a very complex highly technical, very expensive process to produce the shots. So the, the, the companies needed something much, much cheaper. Well, one of the cheapest ways to, to extract mRNA is to create uh, an E. coli bacterial-based bacterial platform. And now they are growing uh, bacteria that produces spike protein uh, that is E. coli. And then they have to deal with the E. coli because you can't inject E. coli into people. That will surely kill them. 
So they try, they, they try to you know, hit it with uh, a product that will kill off the E. coli. The only problem with that, as I'm sure as a doctor you're aware, is nothing perfectly kills off E. coli. So much of that slipped through, much of the DNA in the E. coli slipped through. And, and that I, I, it's hard to judge uh, what all the problems are there. I mean, you know, I, I see things in the medical records such as sepsis, post-vaccination. I can imagine that um, the, the, this is antibiotic-resistant bacteria that slipped through in these shots. Uh, they, the DNA of the E. coli then could be partly encased in lipid nanoparticles and enter into cells, uh, causing God knows what uh, issues. And then on top of that, this sounds like the Jinsu Knives commercial. There's more. <laughs> you know, Kevin McKernan, uh, you know, saw the SV40 uh, segment. So SV40 is simian virus 40. Uh, it was a known contaminant, I believe, of the polio uh, vaccine in the 60s. It is a cancer-causing uh, contaminant. So there is a segment of SV40 that is part of this. It was not disclosed to the European Medicines Agency or to the uh, Food and Drug Administration. And we don't know what that's doing. Is that segment of SV40 causing cancer like it did in the polio vaccine or not? We don't know. We do know that it has some utility in getting the spike protein to enter the cells. But the point is they never disclosed the, this simian virus 40 segment to the FDA. And th this is adulterated. This is an adulterated product. And then there's other more complex things going on. Um, I'm aware that there's something called an open frame. So you have a start codon and a stop codon. And that's to keep uh, stuff from replicating in your system and uh, incorporating this, uh, you know, foreign DNA and, and uh, weird proteins uh, into your system. But that, that segment there is called an open frame. I'm not claiming to understand this. I'm not a scientist like Kevin McKernan. Uh, but that open frame apparently can cause protein misfolding. Um, and protein misfolding can have all kinds of neurological impacts. Which you're alluding and to. Is, so there's a lot to be scared of here. What you're alluding to is prion disease, which can be uh, called Creutzfeldt-Jakob or mad cow in humans. And it's, it's a terrifying thing. Mm -hmm. Are you able to speak about... So we need to be too. Are you able to speak at all about Todd Callender and his uh, 14th Amendment claim? And if, if not, I can refer people to go back and listen to a previous episode where I had uh, Attorney Todd Callender on. Yeah, uh, uh, remind me what he was talking about. I'm, I'm, Todd and I are friends, so I'm 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 uh, I'm not I, I can't say I'm 100 percent aware of okay. every interview he's given, but uh, I, I Todd is uh, Todd is a very interesting uh, person. And, you know, he does, he's, he's very aggressively looking at issues such as oath of office. Uh, apparently, a lot of our leadership has not taken the proper oath of office to defend and protect uh, American citizens and the Constitution. And, uh, you know, I think that that goes to this real uh, failure of ethics 
uh, and patriotism in our political leadership. They are, they are not acting uh, in a responsible and patriotic way. So what was he referring to on the 14th Amendment? Uh, I may be able to address that. It was the uh, Robert V. Austin case, and he was basically making the claim that from myriad verse, I think it was myriad, um, if you change the, the yeah. genetic makeup of an organism, you then become the owner of said organism. Yeah, I, I, I'm aware of the Myriad Genetics uh, Supreme Court case from some years ago. And, I, you, know, it, you know, one of the things that one of the principles that we were struggling with, you know, a while ago now, decades ago, was can you patent life? And essentially, there was a position that was being taken by many people that you cannot patent life. Life is life. It's not patentable. It's not ownable. Uh, that ha that has to do with God and the spirit, and we should not try to own and patent life. Uh, but that myriad genetics uh, case goes to that issue a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it remains to be seen how this is going to work out uh, in terms of how the courts are going to deal with a lot of these issues, and that's one of them. Certainly, you know, I would be making the argument that nobody owns anybody just because they gave them uh, genetically modified or modified their genetics. Um, and and I cannot imagine our courts going along with the fact that you own a patent, you know, that part of you is patented. But but, you know, I, I mean, Todd has a valid point and we need to we need to look at uh, that interpretation and where it could go and make sure it doesn't go there. When I think part of his point is, is if other people claim to own human life, he's hoping this case will, this case will prevent anyone from saying they can own other human, human life or say that a person is not a human or, you know, some nature of that. Yeah. Well, we all need to wake up here because, uh, I mean, we're already in, a very much more controlled society than what I grew up in. And, you know, certainly uh, leadership, corporate leaders like Bill Gates, uh, they believe they have a right to control every single thing about us, um, including our food intake, our energy use, our ownership of property or non-ownership of property. And, and I do think that... Uh, that's where this is going, uh, especially with the uh, central bank digital currencies that they're trying to foist upon us. And we've got to stop that because I want to remain a free human being. Um, you know, I don't think anybody should be yoked uh, and controlled uh, through their food, energy, money, uh, you know, um, through control of their food, energy, and money, basically. It's very, uh, uh, like from the Bible, Nimrod, and from, you know, the Tower of Babel to control people that way. And it's not looked upon very well in the Bible. Well, I think we have, I mean, clearly, and I know Todd has concerns about the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies, and they have they are actively building out an infrastructure that has an incredible ability to take in data so i can certainly envision that they would have you know uh, nanoparticles that could transmit data about how an individual's body is functioning 
um, two, two servers that then are collecting that and tracking that person, tracking everything about that person. And, uh, you know, this is very concerning. That capacity is there now. Um, it's, it's very interesting. If you look around any community, you will see prefab buildings and they have about 40 foot walls on them. They're cement, 40 foot walls. I've been all over this country. They're in every city I land in. As I come in from the airport, they're in all of those, uh, industrial parks. You let's remember what they're doing right now. They're building out server farms and computer uh, computer uh, co concentrations of computers in every community to implement the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies and the 5G networks. Uh, and and just look around and and try and understand the uh, the electricity grid is being uh, developed. Uh, for that, you know, I have uh, a client who's an electrician who goes around the country. That's what he, you know, part of what he does is put these things up. And he's telling me about these computer centers that are being built everywhere. Those computers are the precursor to the implementation of a control mechanism on society. And we need to be aware of it and we need to watch what it's doing. I mean, computers can serve good and they can serve evil. And I think that the, tr the close, tight tracking and surveillance of human beings is evil, and that is certainly one of the goals uh, that is that is being implemented. And even right further now. your point, if you look in the World Patent Office, I believe it's zero six zero six zero six. I believe it's Microsoft has a patent that allows a cryptocurrency to be distributed based on the human's behavior. So how would they know your behavior unless they can transmit and receive and know what you're doing to either give you this cryptocurrency or not? If you've been a good pet, you know, doing what they want you to do or not doing what they want you to do. Yeah, it's yeah, they want this social control. And, and, and we ha as Americans, we are really uniquely suited uh, in the world. I think we still are the shining city of the hill because we had these concepts of individual liberty uh, and that the individual had rights uh, against everyone else and that those rights were actually protected. As long as you weren't harming other people, you had this individual freedom. And it is very clear that the, they, they want to move to a more communitarian idea and that the community rights will override that of the individual in many cases. But, but that idea was the founding idea for all of its imperfections, you know, and, and obviously our constitution contains slavery for God's sake. So, you know, there's some, there's bad and good in that constitution. But at this point, you know, as a society, when you went through a huge upheaval to get rid of slavery, we've gone through a huge upheaval to expand uh, the rights of women, minorities, our, our gay population. We've done a great deal uh, to be a much more tolerant, accepting society, but, but it, is not, it is built on individual rights. I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't saying, oh, uh, the black community has to have reparations. You know, what he was saying was, don't judge anyone by the color of their skin or the color of their eyes or hair or their race or their background, you know, take them as individuals. That was his message. You know, don't just assume because someone's black or white that they're this or that. 
take that person as an individual and judge them on their merits, on the honorable life that they're leaving, uh, living, uh, you know, and on their uh, on their actions. That's what that's what our society's about, and that's what these social movements. We have had social movements, but they're about expanding those individual rights to vote, to exist, to be an economic uh, person, uh, to own a business, to raise your family the way you feel your family should be raised, uh, to practice your religion the way you feel your religion should be practiced. And we've been very accepting of many lifestyles and many religions, and that's the unique nature of this country. And, uh, you know, and I think that that is embedded in the spirit of Americans. Um, it's not perfect, uh, and, and we're always fighting about something. But uh, I think we have the capacity to continue to have our disagreements, but to understand those basic, basic principles that have, I believe, in my lifetime grown stronger. And I think the COVID crisis, in a way, has actually caused all of us to rethink those basic principles uh, and, to, and, and to address the issue that, you know, to be a free society, we have to be eternally vigilant to maintain that freedom. And to be a free person, we may need to make sacrifices. I think, there, you know, like we were, I'm coming back around to the sacrifices that so many people have made. Those sacrifices locked in those basic ideals into all of those individuals and revived those ideals. So I think there's a lot of bad that happened in COVID. That is one of the very good things. Yeah, I try to find the good in all things. Um, and I think, the, you know, the word apocalypse doesn't mean destruction into the world. It means an uncovering and to, to reveal something. And I, I think the good thing that's come out of this is I've been able to meet men like yourself and all the guests I've had on this, this show, people that I never would have spoke to my entire life. But now I'm able to have great relationships with, with these people because we're all of one mind. You know, we're fighting for human freedoms, which is something that I never thought I'd find myself in the middle of. And, and isn't it an honor to be here and to be fighting for uh, human dignity and freedom? I, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel the same way, uh, you know, as a lawyer, you know, I felt like I was doing good work. I did see a lot of these uh, things, uh, you know, happening in society. Uh, but, you know, I have had the, the most wonderful clients and uh, the most wonderful constitutional issues to litigate as have hundreds of my peers. Uh, you know, we have been active in the courts. Um, we have to think through our constitution again, and we have to argue how that constitution should be applied in these courts. And you know, that's a really a, been a success story. I know the Supreme Court this week, you know, said, oh, it's moot. But the, but the reality is we won those cases down below. We, we got, you know, we did back, it took a while and it took too long, but it shows the beauty and genius of our system where the Article Three courts, Article Three of the Constitution, stood up and played a role and stopped a lot of the madness. I mean, I wish it had happened faster. I wish it had stopped more of it, but they stopped a lot of the madness uh, and they stopped society from going insane. 
And, uh, you know, so I'm very thankful for the uh, the uh, conservative federal judges principally. But I will say as well, one of the judges that gave us a good opinion was uh, appointed by Jimmy Carter in 1979. Uh, and he gave us the, one of the fastest opinions I ever had and put a physician back to work wow. in one day. <laughs> so, you know, I I really, you know, but that's somebody who had classic, traditional, liberal values liberal meaning liberal society uh, you know the the capitalism the free speech uh the right to practice your religion those values he had those values he implemented them as soon as that case came into his courtroom so we've just seen some marvelous decisions and i and i think also all of the attorneys that have been in this fight one of the things that has happened is that we now have pathways to success that we can see uh, across a whole spectrum of cases, whether it's in the medical field, employment field, military field, uh, you know, or otherwise, that cases that have succeeded ultimately prevailed. And, and it will not take us very long to gear those up again. And I know I'm, I'm disappointed that the Supreme Court called this moot. I wish they had uh, just said that what was done uh, needs to have a resolution at the Supreme Court. But the, these issues have had resolutions at our highest courts of appeals, and those cases stand. They stand, and they're in place, and they're usable if this happens again, and we are ready to use them. Well, sir, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Where can people find you? Where can people support you? Where can people reach out if they need legal assistance or direction? Well, I have been working uh, with attorneys throughout the United States since the beginning of this crisis. Uh, we have formed a, uh, it's an Ohio nonprofit now. Uh, we are hoping to get a 501c status soon. Uh, and it's called Freedom Council. Uh, so it's freedomcouncil.org. Um, council is spelled C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Uh, so freedomcouncil.org is where you can um, you can input your data and and you can have it presented to a group of several hundred attorneys uh, that that are really working hard to do this. And I think one of the things that that we're coming to the conclusion of in Freedom Council is there are some types of actions I think that we can do to take those people that have been injured in one way or another by this crisis and put them in sort of small squads, uh, little, you know, little groupings of people that can go after hospitals, go after employers, you know, and bring those cases. So we are thinking of how to, you know, become more efficient in terms of how to bring those cases uh, besides the class actions that we filed and some others. Um, I, I know for a fact, just talking to people and, and looking at statutes of limitations, that many of you have gone past your statutes of limitations for your death, your family member's death in a hospital, or some, or maybe a workers' comp claim because of a vaccine injury, that type of stuff. But you can still, you can still help. Um, so. You can help by supporting groups, uh, nonprofit groups throughout the movement. Uh, you can also help uh, by looking at where hospitals have failed with the use of remdesivir and the VAERS program, the failure to report vaccine injury. So if you have a grouping of, let's say, five or 10 people who've been vaccine injured, uh, 
that's a good group. That's enough to go after a hospital for its failure to do the mandatory reporting, which we know they have failed. All the hospitals across the country have failed. Uh, so we can turn that little group on those hospitals to hold them accountable for the failure to report the injuries and death that they've seen from the shots. So that's one project that we're working on right now. There's 2,800 hospitals uh, in the country, and we think we could form a group of five or 10 people to go after each and every one of those hospitals. So that's one of our projects uh, that we're working on for failure to report. They're mandatory reporters, just like if a child comes in that's been abused. They're mandatory reporters. If you come in and you've been abused because you took a shot without your consent and you've been injured, they're a mandatory reporter and they're not doing it. So that's one effort that I think we can do on a mass basis. Uh, so I want people to feel that they can be empowered. There are some things we can do and Freedom Council is gonna be the place to find out what you can do and how we can creatively hold people accountable uh, when they went to the dark side and imposed this evil on our nation. Amen. I, I'm honored to be here with you. Yeah, sorry. I, I went on a little long there, but I, I really do feel, I really do feel it's so important that people feel, I think there is a way to turn their power uh, and turn the tables on what's happened to us. and. And we, we've done, you can see, uh, we, we are thinking about that and how to do that every single day. Well, I, I pray that God blesses you in your endeavors and you connect the people that need to be connected to get this moving and, and hold people accountable for the evil they've done. Thank you, sir. We're gonna. Yeah, thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, the duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. Doesn't dinner sound great as it's cooking? This dinner is from Riverbend Ranch, which always provides prime or high choice, has never been given hormones, never been given antibiotics, never been given mRNA vaccines. It's raised in the USA. It's processed in the USA. In fact, it's fully vertically integrated, which means that they own the cow that gives birth to the calf. It's raised on their fields and then taken to their butcher and then shipped to you. And if we compare what we can buy from Riverbend Ranch to four other major state companies that sell bundles that have ribeyes and other meat in it, it can be as much as $184 to $59 less expensive. It's a great price value and it's a delicious piece of meat. Check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's my
cleanbeef.com slash after hours. Mycleanbeef.com slash after hours.